Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello and welcome to These Times. I'm Tom McTague. This week we've got another special episode for you, an interview with the former Conservative Cabinet Minister, leadership candidate and now podcast supremo, Rory Stewart. In this episode, Rory and I chat about his life and influences, from the people and places which inspired him to the tensions and contradictions baked into the heart of his politics. We talk about populism and spycraft, John le Carré and Lawrence of Arabia, the past and the present, oh, and of course the future. I found the conversation really genuinely fascinating. I hope you do too. So Rory, thanks so much for coming in. It's great to see you. We're going to do what we always do on this podcast. We're going to take it all the way back to the beginning, right the way back to the start of your life. You're born in Hong Kong and then you're educated at the Dragon School in Oxford and then at Eton and then back to Oxford Balliol College. Tell me a bit about that because that's already quite an exotic life for most people here. Who who were you studying with and what was the atmosphere at the time? So I was born in 1973. And uh, at that stage, my father was in the British Secret Service. So I moved with him from Hong Kong back to London. Where... Do you know that as a child, by the way? Do you know that your dad I, is a spy? I didn't find out until after he left. Right. And then he told me, but it was a terrible secret. And I was very worried, you know, as a sort of 10, 11 year old. Because he 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 left the Secret Service when I was six. Okay, he'd risen for so people know he'd risen up to the deputy yeah. uh, in command number two yeah. in the Secret Service. Yeah, and I found out. I guess he told me four or five years after he left, but he told me it was a big secret, and I was very very worried that I'd say something wrong and that I'd tell another boy, and then the KGB would come and kill him. <laughs> so it okay. felt like a real burden to to have this kind of knowledge. Not also, I imagine, quite cool for a, for a kid. You know, your dad's a spy. Your dad's James Bond. That yeah. sounds... Yeah, yeah, of course. And and I, I... My father was quite a kind of James Bond-like figure. He's, he wasn't at the sort of more, I guess, academic end of it. He was somebody who'd loved his time in the war, uh, was very, very physical, had a very kind of strong personality and view of the world. I, I remember as a, a young boy, I guess, walking through the streets of Hong Kong with him and something happened behind him and suddenly he whacked a guy on the ground, threw him over his shoulder, <laughs> claimed the man had been trying to steal his pocket or attack him in some way. I, I never saw the attack. All I saw was this guy flying through the air. And so, yeah, and he would take me out when I was young on rafts, bamboo rafts in the jungle. He'd take me fencing in Hyde Park. He, he, enjoyed the idea of people like Lawrence of Arabia and Alexander the Great. Probably not very seriously. I mean, I think he, he just probably watched a couple of movies. But I took these people on as very serious role models. Right. I mean, it sounds like a scene from a John le Carré book. I mean, it sounds like you're a character in one of, in one of these books, or, or certainly your father is. Well, the great thing about John le Carré is that he essentially is the great analyst of 1970s Britain. And in a sense, many people from my kind of background who went to those kind of schools and who, like me, had fathers who'd been colonial civil servants and grandfathers who'd been in India were walk-on characters in the Carey book. And what the Carey, John the Carey works out in his amazing portrait of the reality of the Secret Service in the 1970s is the tension between the dreams and romanticism 
of people brought up in really a kind of late Victorian, almost late empire view of the world and the reality of the the underwhelming experience of rainy Britain in the 1970s. But doesn't this kind of explain yourself? I mean, we'll come back to this. Like, You, you must be infused with this romanticism and these ideas that you can do things and, and to live up presumably to your father, this larger than life figure. I mean, you go on to do these Lawrence of Arabia type walks that just seem completely otherworldly to today. You're right. And in a way, the reason why I became so angry with the Conservative Party and so angry with figures like Boris Johnson and Jacob Rees-Mogg is that they were people who were supposed to have come from the same tradition and were supposed to have the same serious commitment to public service and to particular ideas of kind of honour and sacrifice. And I was completely horrified to discover that people who apparently shared all the same kind of education and values and upbringing and background were prepared to act as members of parliament in ways that I couldn't kind of imagine uh, these Lacare figures wanting to act. They did. I mean, I've spoken to Boris Johnson about John Lacare and he would say John Lacare was wrong. John Lacare was got it all wrong. John, John Lacare painted a, a, a desperate picture of Britain in which wasn't true, declinist. It was apologetic where we didn't need to be. So you have this sense that J- Johnson isn't living up to the ideals of that kind of, of the class that he was born into. Yes. Yeah, I think actually he's a villain in a John le Carre novel. He's a classic example of somebody too comfortable with the sort of plutocratic media age. He's somebody who too willing to compromise to get ahead too willing to change direction. He he would be either the sort of slightly smooth uh, boss pushing their way through, or more likely the kind of figure in some fancy London restaurant with fingers into the editors who's um, up to no good deals. But Le Carre would think of you that you are far too romantic and nostalgic about this, and that you're not accepting the decline or the selfishness of Western interests. That's how John Le Carre would paint it. Yes, and that, I think that in a sec, your your class had failed by, by yeah. the seventies. Yeah, yeah, I think I think we had failed, and it, it's a failure which is necessary because you know, as, as you don't need me to say, I mean, <laughs> this whole idea of being preached at at school that we were—I remember my leaving sermon where we were told we were very privileged and therefore we had these very deep responsibilities towards public service—that. The problem with that, of course, is the privilege bit, that for maybe centuries, people from privileged backgrounds have tried to justify their privilege by saying, yes, but, you know, we go and serve in the army, or we can go to dangerous places where people shoot at us, or we go into public service, or these poorly paid jobs. And, and that's what justifies our kind of position, our education. And... But of course, that is in a sense and has been since the, probably since the Romans or the early Middle Ages, a kind of an excuse or an alibi for inequality and injustice. So, and it's also true, as Tacitus points out and Le Carre points out, that this class generally doesn't deliver on what it promises. It's generally hypocritical, greedy, self-serving. And cloaks itself in this sort of narrative. Well, then isn't isn't Boris Johnson and and his ilk right to mock it, poke fun at it, to not, to not take it seriously? And you're wrong to constantly see to sort of rejuvenate it. Well, I think what Le Carre points out. I mean, you know, I don't know. I hope most listeners read Le Carre as carefully as obviously you and I do. But <laughs> but uh, in a John Le Carre novel, he basically says that. Two choices face this kind of group of people with these kinds of ideas about public service. You, you, you either try to battle in a slightly tragic and ultimately disastrous way to uphold uh, unrealistic ideas, or you sell out and you completely embrace the very worst tendencies of the modern age and you just enjoy your privilege, accept the game, exploit it for all it's worth and try to get to the top and ultimately make a lot of money. Yeah. Um, I think Le Carre has a much, and as I do, a much more negative view of the latter choice, that that is not a moral choice. It's an abrogation of responsibility and it's 
it may be more realistic, but it's realistic only because it's aligning yourself with the worst tendencies of your age. I always felt he was more cynical even than that, than that he didn't see much difference between Britain, the West, and the Soviet Union at the time, or, or anyone else, that we were all as bad as each other. We were all colonists and all the rest. And so it wasn't quite the first depiction you made out there. Well, the Carry, I love this. <laughs> we're going to go around on this. After all, the Carry, you know, himself joined the British Secret Service. Yeah. And uh, was a, actually a teacher at Eton. And so he did those things because he had a deeply idealistic side to him. And these stories are, are endless stories of the journey from naivety to disillusionment. You're right, he does. Which is, your, which is your own story. Yeah. And at some point, yes, he does toy with the idea that maybe our systems, all these systems are just as bad as each other. But the central character, the, the anti-heroes of these stories, are fighting against that realisation. Okay, so let's paint you as that as that character. You're fighting this dawning realisation that the system stinks and it doesn't work. You, following your father's footsteps early on, you leave Oxford and you join the diplomatic service in Indonesia. Then you're a British representative to Montenegro. And then, and then after September the 11th, you decide to take a two-year walk across Afghanistan, Iran, Pakistan, India, and Nepal. Now, given your background, it's understandable, surely, that people think, hang on, what's going on here? Why are you doing this? Um, so tell us, why, why did you do that? I did the walk. Uh, I think, I mean, I was young. I mean, it, this is, you know, this is more than 20 years ago. There's a man in my late 20s. I was frustrated by being locked up in embassy compounds. I felt that I wasn't really getting to grips with what was happening in countries and that the way to learn was to do this walk, walk 25, 30 miles a day and stay in 550 village houses and listen to villagers talk about their lives. And But I did it to learn and inform myself so that when I returned to government, I would have a better sense. And my goodness, it worked. I mean, it was revolutionary for me. I, I returned back to get involved in these interventions in Iraq and Afghanistan with a completely different view of what those countries were. And I felt a very useful view because the modern world is very virtual. Diplomats, sometimes not even based on the countries which they're supposed to be accredited to. Everything's happening from guarded compounds because of security. They're not spending a single night in a village house. Uh, learning local languages is much less prized. And that means that the distance between the, the rhetoric, the language, the, the theories that we impose on these countries, what's actually going on the ground, is so mad. And ultimately, that's why the Iraq intervention fails. That's why the Afghan intervention fails. Because we're trying to imagine worlds that have never existed mm -hmm. and trying to do things that we feel that we ought to do rather than what we can do. And so for me, this walk, it was many things. It was adventure, it was romance, it was the Hindu Kush, it was finding archaeological sites, it was a travel book. But was it, it, was it was... Lawrence of Arabia again? You know, like like your father's hero? Yes, I mean, Lawrence actually did a very, very similar trip. I found later, I didn't realise this at the time, but later I realised that he'd done a very, very similar trip, um, walking right the way through uh, the Middle East um, before he joined the British government. Mm. I mean... In in um, the places in between, uh, which is your book about your walk, um, you started by talking about uh, Babur, the first um, emperor of um, Mughal India, and you you give an account of it uh, and his account of his own life, and you say he is a careful observer with the sense of humor and experience of a man who has fought, traveled, and governed. Which sounds to me like a kind of kind of hero that you would like to be. And at times it seems that the only thing missing from his story is himself. He never explains what drives him to live this extraordinary life and to take these kinds of risks. I no, See, I read that and think, well, you're talking about yourself there. I don't think I quite get why you do it uh, from, from your book. So yeah. you're, well, you're hit, there's something hidden about you. Yes. And I think maybe the answer is that you, you can't really explain for, for Babel, who lived 500 years ago, because we don't understand enough about what it meant to be from this sort of Mongol-Uzbek background, their values, and why it's absolutely natural to him to be living this kind of life. And I think it's also something that, you know, the, the way, I, I think it is true that in order to get 
the way that I think about the world or politics or public service or anything like this, you, you just have to grasp the kind of values that you bring. I mean, I think that the closest analogy I can get is people saying to climbers, you know, why do you climb these mountains? And they sort of say, well, because it's there, which of course is not, not much of an answer. But I think what they're gesturing towards is that unless you fully understand the romance of climbing, the experience of climbing, the the combination of danger, you, you can't really communicate with someone else. The same with me. That For me, it seemed to me, still seems to me, completely obvious that you would want to walk across Afghanistan, that anyone who had the chance to do it would have, would have done it. And not just a cynical explanation that you were evidently a spy sending information home. No, no, no. Because the romance I've, I find interesting is it seems that you have this, as we've discussed, romantic idea so, of... So, so just, 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 just be clear, you know, whatever I did in the British government, that walk across Afghanistan was not working for the British government. I was on leave from the British government. Okay. Um, so so I, mean, I think it's important because I think the fact that I've worked for the British government means that people assume that everything in my life is somehow a lie, which I find very disturbing. That walk was not, I mean, in the modern world, I mean, one way of putting it is anybody who's ever worked in British intelligence would understand that it's completely insane in the early 21st century to think that the way for British intelligence to gather intelligence in Central Afghanistan is to send one solo guy with a dog and a walking stick <laughs> walking through the countryside. But, but you know, you, know I, you pick it up in, in, in plenty of books. I'm, I'm just picking up George Packer's book on Richard Holbrook, which I'm sure you've read called uh, Our Man, and you feature a couple of times in there, and it says the same thing, you know, Roy Stewart, diplomat, walker, traveler, probable spy. You know, it is it is something that is, is said at the highest levels of US yeah, government. No, but, but what I suppose I'm saying is that it's more plausible to suggest that I was working in the intelligence agencies when I was working in the foreign office, but not when I'm on this walk. That's what I'm trying to say. Yeah. And then you, you finish the walk, then, and then you go straight back into an extraordinary job, which is you're the deputy governor of a province of Iraq after the 2003 invasion. And so, again, you're drawn like the kind of moth to the flame back into an idea that you can govern a place and that if if the right people are put in the right positions, all will be well and that you could do it. But every single time in your life, it seems that you come up against a reality and you're disillusioned by it. You suddenly struck with a kind of horror about what, what yeah. actually is happening. And I think I think the so the disillusionment in Iraq is the realization that it is mad in the twenty first century to think that foreigners can represent Iraqis or make decisions on their behalf or build a state for other people. But remember that fantasy, I'm more explicit about it, but there were 150,000 Americans and Brits. Mm -hmm. They were spending close to $150 billion a year. This was a, you know, I had a particular weird 1970s version of this, but the version of the early noughties that took us into Iraq and Afghanistan was far more extreme because it was combined with kind of Tony Blair-style technocratic vision and political science manuals that said there was a, you know, there were books called Beginner's Guide to Nation Building and they were going to fix failed states. It's a kind of utopian pseudo-scientific idea that somehow there was this history had ended, there was this model for liberal markets and democracies, and we could just go and invade other people's countries and turn them into some version of we don't know what. But somehow implicitly Sweden, Switzerland or something, right? Probably the United States, given that it was being led by the United States. Um, so, yeah, I was disillusioned. But what I couldn't understand is why everybody else took even longer to get there. You know, it, it sounds mad saying it now. But I was saying it was mad from pretty quickly in Afghanistan, right? I can see it even on the walk. I'm beginning to sense that this story that we're going to create a gender-sensitive, multi-ethnic, centralized state based on democracy, human rights, rule of law is mad. I mean, it now sounds as though they couldn't possibly have been saying that, given what we know, but they were saying this. And an entire British government, American governments continued to commit to this, generals, academics. So I wish in a way 
others had been disillusioned as quickly as I was disillusioned because I actually found myself, in the context of Afghanistan, fighting a nearly 10-year battle in which I was frequently made to feel as though I was insane March. I think you talk about Richard Holbrook's book. I was one of Holbrook's advisors when he's bringing together the policy for Obama. I tried to say to him, this is not working. You're not going to be able to win. At best, you can keep a light footprint in Afghanistan, but this idea of nation builds matter. And his response is to say, oh, Rory is a sort of pessimistic Lawrence of Arabia. If only we listened to the tribes figure. Because he can't handle, I'm afraid, reality. But Holbrook is a kind of version uh, in, in, in the American cycle, perhaps, of what your kind of father was. Um, you know, they, they are in a position now where they are the imperial power trying to govern places. And they have a, an elite which is completely committed to the idea that they can do it and that they can perfect the system. You know, what, what does he say? He says um, in the book, Rory Stewart spoke for all the Rudyard Kipling nostalgists everywhere, calling for more Rory-like experts and more respect for the tribes. I guess the irony of what you, as the way you've described it there to me, Rory, is that you're now, you now stand accused of standing for the technocracy who's trying to keep the show on the road of the old kind of governing class that came crashing down in 2016. You're the kind of high representative of that now, perhaps the most popular figure with the with the biggest podcast and all of that. And yet you've spent so long being disillusioned by all of that world that that failed. Isn't isn't that a tension huge within tension. you? Huge tension. Huge tension. I mean, because I deeply disagree with the rightward lurch of the Conservative Party, and because I find populism, particularly right-wing populism, even worse than the old centre. I end up being identified with the old centre. But actually, if you read Politics on the Edge, this book, you can sense that I am already pretty angry with the sort of David Cameron, Tony Blair setup when I come in. It's just I hadn't imagined just how bad it could get under people like Boris Johnson. But the fact that I'm against the right-wing populist version of the Conservative Party does not mean that I'm in favour of a sort of centrist technocracy. I'm a conservative of a different sort. You're Tory. I'm a Tory. Yeah, I'm a Tory. I believe in tradition, love of country, restraint abroad, prudence at home, the wisdom of local communities, landscape. I'm romantic about British history. And it's because of those things that I'm equally appalled by a sort of very contentless, abstract, progressive, technocratic vision of Britain. And also, I'm so disgusted. You know, I'm, I'm intellectually repelled by the centrists, and I'm morally repelled by the populists. I mean, a couple of things, though. On, on populism, surely you kind of, you need an element of populism. It's a, it's a sort of check on... The, the, the central thrust of populism that there, the, there is a kind of elite that are out of touch, that don't represent the ordinary people. There well, is a truth in that, right? The, or it's the, failing. The critique of populism is almost always correct. The solutions of populism are almost always immoral and dangerous. <laughs> Do you yourself let go of that old centrist kind of technocracy? So let's take Syria or, or the recent pullout from Afghanistan or indeed the lockdowns. You were, you were early out yep. the door on lockdowns. Yep. That is a, a the, the most hyper use of technocratic government that you could possibly imagine, right? That is, that is a, the state tells you what yep. to do on yep. everything. Yep. Now, there is a, a lot of controversy now about whether that was right. Well, you got a lot of benefit yep. from the start. Well, what's your view on that now? Were you, were you right or were you, or you, do you look at Sweden or somewhere like that and think you were wrong? I think the jury, to some extent, is out. There's no doubt that Britain was about in the middle of the pack. I mean, in the end, what Boris Johnson did, which was to be reluctant to lock down at the beginning and then extend the lockdown much longer than anyone could have imagined, seems to have put Britain about in the middle of the pack. My uh, instincts there, and, and th th you're absolutely right, it's a conflict within me. Mm. Uh, I have two instincts, usually in government. One of them is decentralization, liberty, let people get on with things. The government doesn't know what it's doing. But the other thing which comes out of the government doesn't know what it's doing, which is get on with it, grip it, take a grip, make a decision because the government's just going to faff around. 
there's a huge tension in that. The government is both useless and can't do the small things. So you want it to do all the big things. So, so it's, 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 um, you're completely right. It's a huge contrast. And I think I'm coming down as I reflect on this over three years, much more on the get the government out of the way, decentralize, delegate down. But the tension's there all the time. For example, when I'm dealing with prisons, took over as a prisons minister, prisons were, as they are again now, filthy, violent, disgusting, drug-ridden, inhumane. How do you respond to that? With the wisdom of hindsight, probably the answer would have been to really invest in delegating that power down to thoughtful local regional solutions because there are too many prisons to be run from the centre, 120 of them, 80,000 prisoners. should give governors, regional directors of prisons much more freedom. But actually faced with the problem, what I actually did was the opposite. I said, okay, I'm going to take responsibility for this. I'm going to be the chief executive. I'm going to say I'm going to resign in 12 months unless violence is reduced in prison. I'm going to set up an operations room. We're going to go through all the 10 worst prisons every week and check how they're doing. I'm going to get out on the landings. I'm going to talk directly to the prison officers. Which is the same instinct with COVID. Same instinct with COVID, same instinct with international development. So when I'm, when I'm sexually safe for international development, and even when I'm a minister for a couple of years before that, when things are not working on the ground, instead of saying the whole system is mad and we need to get out of the way, and actually what we should be doing is giving direct cash to the extreme poor and not even pretending that we're going to capacity build, train, implement projects, just we don't know what we're doing. Be much better if you're a poor person in Rwanda, if you just got $700 and got on with it yourself and just forgot about the whole British government and this whole setup. My instinct was, no, 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 we need to improve this. You know, the problem is we don't speak the local languages well enough. We need to push our offices out into more remote areas. We need more professional, more dedicated people with a better granular understanding of what's going on on the ground. And that's the way that we're going to fix this. I had the same instincts in Iraq and Afghanistan. When things began going wrong, my initial instinct was, well, the problem is that these people don't speak the local languages well enough. They, if only they were closer to the communities, if only they studied them more, and they were more patient. It took me a long time in Iraq and Afghanistan to recognize that's never going to happen. That actually, America and Britain is never going to produce people with that kind of understanding in international development, in intervention that you're never going to be able to build a um, a British prison system where prison ministers are somehow going to be these sort of supremely capable central planners able to run everything. Shouldn't we be worried about Rory Stewart for prime minister then? Because your instinct, if you were prime minister, would be to grip every crisis because you would think, oh, look, that guy underneath, he's useless. He, he can't do that. I need to take control. Well, you, you'd, your instinct would be very Blair-like. You'd, you'd have a policy unit in number 10. You'd be saying, you, you've got to do this, you've got to do that. Well, I, I, think, I, think I'm a, I think I'm a funny form of manager because actually, I mean, I, I'm, I've been running a, a, a charity and I, I believe in very radical delegation. And I find it easy to like and trust people. And if I like and trust them, I find it easy for them to say to me, you're wrong. And I'm closer to the ground and I can see things that you can't see and get out of the way. What worries me is when I think, and that can often happen in government, that the people in positions of power have no idea what they're talking about, have been in a very short period of time. You know, I was briefed on Afghanistan in DFID by a group of people, only one of whom had ever visited Afghanistan and the others whom were trying to tell me what to do when I spent years writing about and studying it. So it's that sort of thing that really winds me up. When I was faced with, you know, the Yorkshire prisons director or the governor of Leeds, who'd been doing this for 30 years, who came up to stay with me in my house in Scotland, who gave me the impression when I walked around the landings that this guy really knew what he was doing. Mm -hmm. Boy, do I back away, right? I'm not going to disagree with him about how to run a prison. Yeah. What I find much more difficult is usually the sort of bureaucracy in the center and the slightly unconvincing solutions proposed by centralized civil servants but you there is something within you that keeps drawing drawing you back to these crises that you would like to manage and let's say again let's go back to foreign affairs and say the vote in syria i was reading it's a great bit of the book where you talk about how you're at your sister's wedding and david cameron gives you the call you have to get back to vote for the 
bombing in Syria, the, the bombing that raid that turns out to the British Parliament rejects, and then the, it, the cascade effect is that Barack Obama then puts it to Congress, and it doesn't happen. Now, the likelihood is you would have voted for it. I, I assume you were running back to help the government. But this is still on the basis of the failure in Iraq, the failure in Afghanistan that perhaps nobody knew greater than yourself. But there you are, you're faced with a problem, and you're, you're convinced that this time the West could yeah. could do better. So it, 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 you're, you're right. And it, it's one of the things that makes politics often very humiliating because, of course, you're not thinking clearly about these things. I was very aware that I had rebelled against the government on House of Lords reform. I'd been stuck on the back benches for five years. I was trying to get myself back in the good books. So you tell yourself, as I did then, oh, no, 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 this is not going to be like Iraq and Afghanistan. This is very limited. All that David Cameron is signing up to is a single airstrike in response to the use of chemical weapons. And I don't like chemical weapons and a red line was drawn. And so we got to do the airstrike. Yeah. But obviously, I'm aware in the background, probably if we give him permission to do this, this thing's going to creep like you can't believe, and we're going to end up in a much, much bigger intervention. I'd made the same mistake with Libya. You know, I made these speeches in Parliament about how you're fine. But, you know, we've got to be very restrained in what we do. I really believe that we needed to keep China and Russia on side, and we needed to focus on protecting the population of Benghazi, but not really get involved in this whole regime change stuff. Uh, so in both cases, and I think this is one of the problems with being a politician, the whips will say, well, what do you disagree with, with what you're voting on, Rory? You're on the record saying, you know, you think the red line needs to be held on chemical weapons. Surely you're not against bombing. And you're having to say, well, yeah, but it's that I don't quite trust you guys. I think we're going to vote for one small thing and you're going to do something much worse, which is going to, well, why don't you leave that to later, Rory? You know, you can make speeches about that. You know, we'll set up a meeting for you with the prime minister to talk this stuff through. And so you get talked into doing stuff that, of course, you can justify. And this is the problem with being a politician. You have to sort of explain yourself to your wife and your voters, but where you're left with extremely uneasy, queasy feelings. And actually, it's a relief when finally I'm given things that I feel so strongly about that I can absolutely rebel, that I find a villain in the form, in my mind, of Boris Johnson, a problem in the form of no-deal Brexit, where I can actually say, here I stand. No, I'm not going to sign up. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I'm Sandra and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Yeah, you talk about politics as humiliating there. And in the book, you talk about it having reduced us, that sense that it has reduced you and who you are and what you have to do as a politician, compromises you have to make. Is that a way of understanding then the sort of the ferocity of the, of the rebellion when it came? It had been building within you. It was a kind of cathartic response. All right, I can go after this guy. But is there, I just put this to you, I, I guess... You became the face of a kind of centrist populism, where there were there were easy answers from the centre. If only we could wind back to a life before Boris Johnson, before the idiots voted for Brexit, you know, when life was great and you know the state functioned. But actually, you also explain in the book how that was not the case. And you know, there's a bit. I think it was on page. 66 that jumped out at me. The economy has contracted by 7%. The deficit was high. Debt was growing. The financial services sector, which had been allowed to dominate much of the economy under both the Conservatives and Labour, had collapsed and might never recover. 
decades in which UK G- per capita GDP had grown, suddenly it hadn't. Um, the only two options seem like borrowing more or cutting. You know, this is a disastrous situation, but that kind of even underplays it. You know, we've had, as we've touched, uh, discussed, Iraq, Afghanistan, Libya, which is now a major part of what's going on across the Sahel, Syria, um, the WTO deal with China. You know, your, dad, your dad was a Chinese expert. He knew he knew what was going on. He, he you know, he 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 set up a kind of uh, stream of Chinese experts in the MI6, and yet here we are, David Cameron. Trying to create a deal, a deals trying to become the uh, the closest partner in the West with China. You know, this is a pre-Brexit. This is an establishment that has utterly failed. Yeah. So you you've expressed it beautifully and eloquently, and, and better than I could. Um, it is completely right. I mean, I think people like me who stand for the liberal centre right need to acknowledge just how much we failed. We need to feel a sense of shame about the past. The fact is that the assumptions of the 90s and early 2000s were that we had cracked the economic system, this kind of deregulation, globalization was going to develop, deliver prosperity, that this prosperity was going to lead to a spread of democracies around the world, and that there was this liberal global order that was going to help all these things into being. Mm-hmm. And it felt as though you know, politics was a bell jar where the votes were in the center ground. And all of this had been completely, brutally exposed by the time I came into Parliament in 2010, but we continue to pretend it hadn't been. Yeah, There's a period from 2010 to 2016 where David Cameron, people like me, Ed Miliband, Ed Balls, the whole shebang, continue to behave as though the old order, the old liberal order still holds. Now, of course, I'd, I'd, I'd spotted one problem with it. I could see in Iraq and Afghanistan uh-huh. that the idea of the liberal global order was hollow and didn't make sense. But I was still signing up to the economic vision. I voted through austerity. I still was optimistic about democracy, thought maybe the Arab Spring might be the spread of democracy around the world. I underestimated the kind of strategic and economic threat that China could pose. And I was part of a huge group that did that. So this is why I say that the populist criticism of the center is correct. And that's why the center needs to accept it, dwell on it, develop it. I f- I the, feel... the problem, though, is, Sorry, is the solution that the populists present. I feel like the, the, this moment of between 2016 and 2019, though, after we had the shock of the Brexit referendum, there was a failure, again, of, of politics in Westminster, which you do eloquently touch on, uh, explain in the book. But it's a, such a deep failure in that for ordinary people who say, let's say, the populist critique, that the system had failed, I want a new system. There was such a reluctance to to answer that, was there? There was a, there was a genuine chance that Parliament was not going to deliver on the referendum result. That wasn't a sort of made up... Well, so... There, to defend myself, from day one, I said I would absolutely accept the referendum yeah. result. I was never a second referendum person. And in fact, one of the things that I found very quickly, as I tried to argue for a compromise on this, that I was as much in trouble with the Remainers as I was with the Brexiteers. It's one of the things that made me think that I was probably in the right place. Would you agree that the Remainers have radicalized opinion as well? Yeah. It's kind of I was completely both- mad. I mean, I found myself coming out trying to defend this Theresa May deal, which I thought was a pretty decent deal. You know, controlled immigration, left the political institutions EU, but kept close trading relations, and I think had a better solution to what might happen in Ireland. But I found myself not just taking on the ERG, the hard Brexiteers, but almost immediately, you had Tony Blair out there saying, Boris Johnson and I are in an unholy alliance. We both agree, you know, this is not the best of all worlds. This is the worst of all worlds. Yeah. And when I opened my Twitter, and everyone's like, traitor, it was actually impossible to tell whether these were people who voted Remain or Brexit because this thing, this bell jar where all the votes from the centre ground collapsed into a U-shape, the votes are now in the extremes. People like me, I mean, this is the only way in which I was a centrist. I was a centrist in the sense of trying to hold the strain and say, we voted for Brexit, we're going to deliver Brexit, but we're going to accept that it was a narrow vote, 52% one way, 48% the other way, that there are serious reasons why we're not going to throw ourselves at the mercy of the economy of China and why we need close trading relationships with Europe. And I'm going to try to work my way through this. And no, not a single market, because a single market is unlimited immigration. And I 
absolutely believe that the 52% who voted for Brexit are doing it to control immigration. But something like a customs union, because many of the people, my experience who voted for Brexit, was saying, oh, they quite like the common market. That's what originally convinced them to vote for the 1970s. What they didn't like was the political stuff that got stuck on top. How, how do you feel then about really being the kind of the hero of that 48%? Well, but of, course, but of course, I'm not totally. I mean, if you go on Twitter, there are still many people saying, why is this guy a hero? You know, look, he supported Theresa May's deal. He didn't back a second referendum. I mean, there are still people very angry about that. But I suppose, I hope that even if I've lost every other argument, I might have begun to win the argument that the idea of a second referendum was mad. And that if we'd worked together, we actually had a chance of bringing a more moderate, thoughtful, sensible Brexit through. Because the reason why I couldn't get it through, Theresa May, the government, and people like me who are pushing really hard to do this, was not because of the hard Brexiteers. It was because Labour and the Remainers wouldn't vote for a soft Brexit. Because they believed that if they destroyed any type of Brexit, they'd be able to get a second referendum. Yeah, including your, your podcast partner yeah. as well. Yeah. I mean, I... Um... Again, it, it strikes me that I'm, I'm reading in the uh, Financial Times the, it, an interview in which you're talking about a, a future return to politics in some guise. Once again, I get this sense that you, you can't give up on the idea that you, it might still function. You might be able to make it function. You know, and I, I was struck in the book by the way you, you talk with a kind of reverie about Westminster still and its history and its institutions about your grandfather giving you the crowned masterpieces of eloquence. And this is somewhere d deep in your in your soul, isn't it? That's what draws you back to the romance. Yes, absolutely. Well, it's, I mean, I, I think one of the problems in the modern age is that we think that ideals uh, or an ethical perspective on public service is romance. And I think it's not just romance. But John Le Carre would say it is romance. Uh, yeah, you might do, but I, I think he's wrong there. I think Aristotle is smarter than John Le Carre. Even when and, you, when... And, and what Aristotle is saying is that mankind is a political animal. So the greatest fulfillment that we can have in our lives is to engage with the organization of our city-state, that it's, it's, an, it's a better way of living your life than anything else because it's the only way to directly touch the most important moral problems our obligation to other human beings, the way in which our society is organized, our culture, our landscape, our art, our future. I mean, so I can't be anything other than, and this is why we end up with these stupid cliches like pessimism of the intellect, optimism of the will. I mean, in the end, the business of being a politician in my tradition is all about saying things are crap, but they could be better. It always makes me laugh. B Boris Johnson claims that Aristotle is his great intellectual hero as well. <laughs> Every time I, I speak to a classicist about this, they're, they, they, at the very least, they raise a skeptical eyebrow. Well, I, I, I mean, I, I, I know I'm, I know I'm too obsessed with Boris Johnson. People keep telling me to stop sagging him off, but it makes me so sad because he's somebody who pretends to care about the classics pretend to care about kind of the ideals of Victorian Britain and all this kind of thing. And it works very well from this shtick in spectator articles and this and the other. The truth is the ancient Greeks, the ancient Romans, all the Victorians would be disgusted by a figure like this. The idea that someone like this was their ideal of a statesman. The idea that Aristotle or Cicero or Gladstone would look at Boris Johnson and be like, Thumbs up, mate. Love those values. <laughs> Love the way you're conducting well, yourself. Well, Dis Disraeli, perhaps. I mean, but uh, Disraeli was not the ideal. Well, yes, I think we, this is perhaps for a future conversation. We yeah. could talk about the merits of Disraeli versus Gladstone. Um, but uh, yeah, but at the same time, you, again, you, you see, when you get up close, you're horrified by it, by the reality. And I, I think of Richard Holbrook again, the American Power, or the, the media. In the in in the book, I was I was very struck by a passage in which you appeared to be really very upset by a, a report in there. I think it was the Scottish Sun, which, you know, they, they'd taken some words of what you'd said and, they, and it had made you look bad. It was, a, what are you referring to? It was worse, to? worse than made me look bad. I mean, I, I, I found it completely devastating. I mean, uh, I had been showing around a, a journalist from Scottish Sun 
And he'd been saying to me about my constituency, Cumbria, this is a very comfortable, nice place. Can't imagine you've got any problems with poverty here, aside being the home counties. Hmm. And I disastrously said, no, 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 there is some, there's some pretty primitive areas in this constituency. I mean, you get up to the northern constituency, you can see old men walking around with their trousers tied up with trying to fix old tractors. Rural poverty is pretty extreme. So, of course, headlines, you know, politician says his constituents are yokels, says, you know, they hold their trousers up with twine. Find myself in BBC studios being asked to resign. I've only been in politics for a few months. And for me, my relationship with my constituents it's a very sacred form of trust. I mean, I'm, and it would be like a, a school teacher suddenly being portrayed as saying, you know, my kids are, are incompetent idiots, or a priest saying, you know, my congregation are a bunch of. I mean, it, it's it's horrible hmm. to 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 feel that the one thing that I thought was precious in politics, which is my relationship, my constituents. Of course, that's how a lot of uh, Brexit voters felt that they. The establishment was treating them after the referendum as well, yeah. And that I think yeah. that that plays into yeah. that sense of, you know, the, the division and sort of yeah. radicalism, and hatred um, yeah. that went on. But it, I, I mean, you you're both incredibly connected to these places you walk and you sleep in hedges and yeah. you yeah. speak to you know Afghan tribesmen yeah. and yeah. and your constituents. And yet that view of the world that there is a sacred bond with your constituents and this reverie for parliament. Do you think, look, I'm, I'm walking around with these sort of, these idealistic romantic notions that, God, they don't exist. I thought I, maybe I need to become a bit more cynical, a bit more, you know, d- does that even exist, the world that you, that you imagine? I don't think politics can work without it. I, I think the nature of politics is you can't create good government just by writing a new constitution or tightening up the ministerial code. It's a vocation. And it's a vocation that requires the capacity to say no to power. And I think that's the central lesson of politics, that that it's a very, very paradoxical job. It's a job in which much of the time you have to be Machiavellian. You have to hold your nose and compromise to get power. But in the end, it only makes sense if you retain some form of consistency, some form of consistency. I said this, and I'm going to do this. I did this, I'm going to do the same. And that can only be revealed in the end by your ability to say no to power that there are certain things you're not prepared to do to get power. And that, that's actually, in the way, the only things that really have mattered in politics near the end of the conflict in Colombia, peace in Northern Ireland. I mean, these things come because in the end, politicians are prepared to turn away from the obvious short-term interest of continuing to encourage polarization and to take the risk of undermining themselves in their own political position um, because of what you seem to want to call romance or ideals. I completely take your point that for a system of government to work, for a city-state, you have to have people who believe in it and who have to want to serve and believe that you can make things better. I suppose I'm I'm now the, the child of all of these wars and of the financial crisis, and have become. I feel myself becoming more cynical about it. I would I would read a, is it the um, Kagan book recently about cynicism and the and, or, and pessimism and the sense that that shouldn't be a dirty word either, and that you perhaps need both romance and optimism, but you need the cynicism and pessimism because it's the pessimism, the pessimistic view of life, that stops. The great mistakes. So say let's take a figure like Tony Blair. Again, he's filled with an optimistic sense that he can make the world better. And that sense is reinforced with, say, Kosovo. Okay, so let, let me try to distinguish between two things. I think it's the conservative Tory prudence that you need to stop big mistakes. But that is not pessimism. Pessimism is a much darker, more dangerous force in 
human life. Pessimism essentially endorses the worst instincts of mankind and enables them. And you can end up as a pessimist sounding as though you can predict the future because it's often a good bet to mm. bet on the worst of ourselves. But I think that <laughs> there is the live energy of politics lies in the insight that Blair is wrong and the pessimist is wrong. And that in an odd way, the extreme optimists of the old center and the extreme pessimists are really the same person because both of them do not want to face reality in its texture. They pretend to be able to change the world and secretly all along, they think nothing can be done. If you look at those people in Afghanistan saying, we're going to turn this country into a gender-sensitive, multi-ethnic, centralized state based on democracy, human rights, and rule of law, or Boris saying, we're going to rebuild global Britain, Brexit's great, we're going gangbusters, we're going to have an economy growing faster than that in the United States. People who say that are just fundamentally pessimistic. They have no real interest in how the world works, no real interest in interrogating what can be done. So th that's why I keep coming back to the idea that we can do much, much less than we pretend, much less than these optimists and these technocrats pretend, but we can do much more than we fear. We can do much more than the pessimists fear, that the world does change, the world can improve, and that there's huge loss and sacrifice along the way. I mean, I don't think that there's an easy sense in which this world is necessarily better uh, in every respect than rural Afghanistan. I think there are very precious things about rural Afghanistan which are lost in the process of modernization. But in the end, in total, it's better. It's better to live in Britain than that thing. And I think, you know, obviously, I mean, you understand Northern Ireland much better than me, but it would seem to me self-evident that the short-term political interests of Ian Pace and the Unionists would have been as they had been consistently from the mid-1970s for that leadership to say no to the Good Friday Agreement. There was very little obvious short-term political upside in doing that. And he did it. He said no to the Good Friday Agreement? No, he, in the, well, I mean, in the end, yeah. he served. In the end, he got behind it. So, so what, what, what I suppose I'm just, I'm trying to turn him into a hero here, right? <laughs> him, 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 I think, as an, as an older man, made moves that would have been very difficult to imagine him making in the mid 1970s. Oh, that's certainly true. I mean, I, I would think of it slightly, I, I do think of it more cynically in that he held out long enough that he inherited the crown. You know, you see this across the world, right? The people that hold out on, are the most extreme against something end up in charge. You see it in uh, Israel, Palestine. Yeah. You and see the, it and the people Ireland. pushing for the compromise get destroyed. But, yeah, I, but, um, but, but, but yes. in the end, those are the nobler people. Um, I, yeah, I, I mean, I can who see... are we trying to hold up here? Are we trying to hold up the people who actually drove through the Good Friday Agreement and then saw their political careers collapse or those who... Trimble. Yeah. Trim, Trimble's a, yeah, it's a fascinating example of this. He it Obviously, he comes... Uh, he, I think in his in his speech to the Nobel Prize winning speech, he is very very eloquent about this this tension between pessimism and optimism, and this I think I remember it now. It's called the tragic mind, and the idea of tragedy rather than pessimism. I, perhaps I was using the wrong the wrong word, and I was very struck by what you were saying there about the optimist and the pessimist being the same person, because I, I ended up concluding with Boris Johnson that he's fundamentally a cynic and a, a pessimist. He thinks this is all nonsense. Uh, and, you know, it's kind of froth and nothing really matters. Well, just to illustrate this, I mean, this is why, you know, when I was working from the Foreign Office, I was the Minister of State, he was the Foreign Secretary, and he'd say to me, come on, Roy, let's sort out Libya. You know, Libya's a bite-sized British problem. And I say, Foreign Secretary, look, you know, we don't have a resident ambassador in Libya at the moment, but, you know, the Italians doing this, the UN's doing this. If I had a budget of 40 million, we could... He immediately loses interest. Yeah. Because he actually doesn't want to do anything. Yeah. 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 I mean, he, he described himself as, I remember the quote from, from my piece and it was, he described himself in one of the few times where I'd got him to speak, I think, refle reflectively. And he says, I'm a, you know, every romantic 
needs the mortar of cynicism to hold themselves up. So I guess that's his take. That's his counter to your argument that you don't have the mortar of cynicism. And so, yeah. So I think he's neither. I think he's a cynic. I don't think it's right to see him as a romantic at all. I think he's because I don't think he believes at all in in the in the romance that he portrays, or or he can't really believe in it because he doesn't introspect. He doesn't question it. He doesn't say. You know, when he talks about global Britain, and I try to say, okay, Foreign Secretary, if you want to do global Britain, this practically are the number of staff that we need to employ, these are the budgets we need to do, this is what we're doing at the embassy, will you sign up to it? He's bored. He he doesn't like detail. And I think someone who doesn't like detail cannot really believe in people. But, but you, you do. Talk to us about the future then. You've you've seen power up close, both you, American power, this kind of senatorial Roman power, and you've seen declining John le Carré British power, and you've you've kind of been horrified by by both, and you've seen it up close in Westminster. You were horrified by David Cameron, by Boris Johnson. I don't think you were horrified by Theresa May, but she was fundamentally a flawed. Yeah, I, I'd buy Theresa May immensely. Yeah, <laughs> um, and so you're out of Parliament. I mean, the critics would say, "Why didn't you have this sacred bond with your yep. constituency? Why on earth didn't you didn't you stick with it? Why didn't you stand as an independent or honor that bond? Why not? Why why are you a, a podcast host and not an MP? <laughs> podcast host and MP. So, in in practical terms, I'm a podcast host and not an MP because um, Boris Johnson did something that no previous prime minister has done. I mean, he stripped me of the whip along with twenty other rebels. Hmm. Including, you know, two former Chancellors Exchequer, Winston Churchill's grandson, six cabinet members. So it's a quite pretty dramatic move against the old one nation tradition, Conservative Party, triggered an election and said that we couldn't stand as Conservatives unless we were prepared to endorse the possibility of a no deal Brexit and get behind his leadership. So I couldn't stand as a Conservative. And I was therefore faced with the choice in my constituency of do I then try to run as an independent against people that I've spent 10 years working with? And in the end, I couldn't bring myself to do that. Instead, I stood as an independent to be mayor of London. And that was an extraordinary experience to really see up front what it's like to try to be an independent in a party system, to go to see these very skeptical donors, try to get money out of them because these parties, Labour, are spending, you know, two, four million pounds on this election. Mm -hmm to try to work out how to, you know, push for that little inch in the polls to be out building a team with nothing then down. That was cancelled because of COVID, delayed for another year. And my whole style of campaigning, I felt, was very, very much street campaigning. So paradoxically, as you point out, I've been campaigning for the very lockdowns that made my style of campaigning impossible. <laughs> right? It became a virtual campaign. I would be very tempted to run again as an independent to be mayor of London, but... At what, the next election. Yeah, but one of the things that Boris did, I don't know whether with people like me in mind, was to change the electoral system. So the whole way that I was going to win is it was like a French presidential system. If I could come second in the first round, there'd be a second round yeah. in which I could win. He's now changed it to first past the post. So it's basically impossible now. He's your nemesis. He's, <laughs> out, to, he's out to stop you at every turn. Well, I don't think he's out to stop me, but I don't think he likes the instability. And I don't think the big parties like the instability of opening up to other parties, which is presumably why Labour nodded this through too. Although Jeremy Corbyn may may bust through this system, so so if if you you're tempted to stand, but you don't think you could win under the current circumstances, so where what what's the future? Um, well, I think the first is I need to get my ideas in order. I mean, you, you've pointed to a lot of contradictions and paradoxes in my ideas. Everyone um, has them, but what, one thing that I'm trying—I think my big idea is this. Right? I spent a lot of time in the book criticizing myself, saying that I'm sort of slightly pathetic and careerist and ambitious. And and the conclusion from that, uh, you know, the Daily Telegraph, I think, ran an article a couple of days ago saying, yeah, you know, we always knew it. Rory's rubbish. Um, <laughs> obviously, the point I'm trying to make is slightly different. I'm trying to say we're all like that in politics. I'm trying to be a bit more honest about it in relation to myself, but I think we're all like that. And sometimes I even want to say, and actually, you know, I'm not the worst. You know, I'm relatively diligent and thoughtful and have a lot of experience. But the fact is, the system doesn't work. And the answer isn't to hope that you could produce more diligent, more thoughtful, more honourable versions of me 
I mean, you might be able to, but I don't think that's, and there are people who I felt were like that, you know, my heroes, people like David Gork, I really admired him. I think he is more thoughtful, more honorable than I was and was a better minister. Also, I, you know, I get on well with David Gork, high priest of the previous settlement, perhaps. Yeah, yeah. Maybe I'm moving more radically on from David with the settlement, but we we get there together. <laughs> um, so my conclusion is that you need a system that doesn't rely on these people in the center. Just as I think the problem in Iraq and Afghanistan wasn't the individuals that were sent to Iraq and Afghanistan, it was the whole idea of us running the country. So I want radical decentralization. I want not just mayors and Greater Manchester and West Midlands with much more power and budgetary authority. I want mayors and towns with proper authority. I want citizens' assemblies. I want a radical devolution of our control over the health service, over education. I want cash given to small business owners instead of expensive, centrally planned regional development projects. I I really want to uh, lean into the idea that everything's going to work better if we actually trust people and let them get on with their individual lives. So just just cash payments to business and to people? Give me an example. So in Cumbria, we did a, just as I arrived, um, the end of a big labour Northwest Development Agency project that ended up, I think, giving seven and a half million pounds to posh up a sort of create a kind of public events space. And goodness knows how many hundreds of thousands or millions were spent in the initial consultation design expertise went into it. So let's say the whole thing in the end cost probably 10 million pounds. I reckoned if you'd given a thousand small businesses in Cumbria 10,000 pounds with no strings attached and told them just get on with it, we would have seen much, much better results. In fact, I would be willing to run a randomized control trial, literally like a medical trial with a treatment group and a control group, running that in another part of the country against the 10 million we spent in Cumbria. And my guess is the results will be 10, 15 times better. And what about the same for people? And so instead of giving them benefits, you just... We well, just essentially give... that's what benefits are. I mean, they are unconditional cash transfers. So they should be. I mean, so I, I think one of the great breakthroughs in benefits which luckily we made in Britain, which they still haven't made in the United States. The United States are still going out food vouchers, mm-hmm. right? I, I think the basic idea is that you should allow poor people. And this is a way in which I do, I, in a sense, agree with, not in a sense, I agree with Ian Duncan Smith with the universal credit, that rather than the government saying, you know, this is your amount for housing, this is your amount for food, this is your amount, give someone a pot of money and let them determine what their priorities are. Just come with a lot of strings attached. You have to turn up to the job center and you have to apply for, for this and that. And yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's, that, that's, that's where the whole thing goes wrong, right? That, that, that's that, the bureaucratic that, state yeah, that we've talked about. Yeah, yeah, that's where the liberal instincts fall down. That's where the whole thing becomes micromanaged. And that's partly because we're unable to be honest about how much that costs. I mean, it might, you think you can sort of reassure critics of benefits that it's okay because, you know, we're going to, micromanage them, watch them, surveil them, sanction them. What you never explain is that you're spending almost as much doing that as they're actually getting in cash benefits. What about universal basic income then? Do you support that? Everybody gets... I don't think everybody, no. I don't think it makes sense to everybody, but I think the poor, yes. So this is the start of the radical Rory Stewart program for Britain? Absolutely. (laughs) But but tell me, how how do you make it real? Because now you're outside... You, you have to climb the pole to get to the top to, to, to do any of this. That's well, the, the question, lesson the question of politics. is, can I navigate this funny world with enough deafness and skill? Maybe not. You know, maybe I'm not suited to be a politician. Maybe I was better suited to be a civil servant or a diplomat. Maybe I should have stayed, you know, doing international development work. I mean, there is part of me that found pleasure, satisfaction, joy in rebuilding and working with the community in the old city of Kabul, working at a scale of a few hundred people that I never found being a Secretary of State with a budget of £12 billion a year that I quite like. You know, I think I would have liked to be the commanding officer of a regiment or the captain of a ship. I like managing things at a sort of 300, 600 person scale. A colonial governor? Yeah, maybe. Yeah. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm sure there are, I'm sure I mean, I think one of the things that I discovered in Iraq is that although it was morally and intellectually wrong that I was there, on a day-to-day basis, it was an incredibly exciting uh, experience of life. And that's something difficult to talk about. It's difficult to explain how you can get real joy and pleasure and fulfillment out of doing things which, if you step back and look at, are not right. Mm. It sounds to me like you still want to be prime minister. 
Well, I'm, I'm going to fall back on a yes, but I mean, yes. I mean, I would really like to be prime minister. I think there's a lot wrong with the country. And I think things could be run a lot better. But so do 650 other MPs and probably 500,000 people in this country think they could have a go at being prime minister and do a better job than the current lot. Probably 10 million people in the country think they could do a better job than the current lot. Um, <laughs> Virtually everyone, I think, does. Uh, so, um, and I believe in public service. I mean, it's the most, you know, I'm, I've never really been very interested in, you know, Jacob Rees-Mogg wanted to be a banker. I never wanted to be a banker. Mm. Boris Johnson wanted to go off and work for the Daily Telegraph. I never wanted to be a Daily Telegraph journalist. Don't pick on the journalists. <laughs> and and these are not things I've, I've always wanted to be in government. You know, I joined the army and was there very briefly. And then I joined the foreign office and then I ran charities. And then I, you know, I've taught at universities and I've gone into politics and these and why is that who knows as you say maybe some weird romantic childhood fantasies but those were the kind of things that seemed natural to me what's the first step on that process back to being prime minister you have to get back into parliament you can't do it through the mayoralties so what's the what's the first step oh, no, through the mayoralties so i that, think that's yeah, the road much more likely if i if i ever were to make it back i would do it by finding out how to be a mayor of of london uh probably because that's that's where my family's base. That's where my roots are. Yes. I think, you know, I do know Cumbria and love Cumbria. Mm -hmm. um, but I think probably my style of politics works best at a local level and demonstrating. Um, I mean, I also know Scotland. So I suppose if I was going to be, I'm a funny divided soul. I'm half Scottish, half English. Uh, my heart has very much been in Scotland. My body's in London, my soul's in Cumbria, <laughs> but it would be at that sort of local level that I would think my route back to politics would begin. The mayor of the Lake District, Rory Stewart. Well, thank you so much for coming in. It's been really interesting. Thank you. Thanks for listening to These Times. I hope you enjoyed that conversation or at the very least learned something about the man who continues to search for a way to get to the top of British politics. If you did, please do share with your friends and family and remember to like and subscribe to the podcast. Next week, we're doing a special episode answering some of the many questions that you have sent in. If you have any more questions, please do get in touch by email, Twitter, or wherever you get your podcasts. Our Twitter handle is at these times pod, all one word, and our email address is these times at unheard.com. These Times is produced by Ewan Daughtry.